Welcome to Fierce City, a podcast where we will talk about the people, places and events that shape the greatest city in the world. I'm PJ. And I'm Satu. And we are your hosts on this journey to discover the lesser known history of London. The great fashion magazine British Vogue has been going for over a hundred years. Always remaking itself, it survived as others have fallen by the wayside to keep its place at the head of the taste-making table. And it's often referred to as the fashion bible. Some of Vogue's editors have become famous names themselves, from Anna Winter and Alexander Shulman to the new editor, Edward Eninfall. Eninfall inherits a print magazine that is thriving in a digital age. He is Vogue's first male editor in its whole history. For the 100 years before him, the magazine's direction and tone was largely shaped by ambitious women. Lovers of fashion magazines hope that Eninfall will bring a new era of diversity to Vogue, and by extension, to all of fashion. British Vogue's fashion editorials are analysed by everyone from trend forecasters to teenagers on internet forums. This kind of power doesn't happen by chance. These days, fine art is intertwined in the pages of Vogue with its fashion and society content. For example, a Matisse cutout from a big exhibition will inspire a colour-blocked outfit. Earlier in its history, the arts coverage was more demanding of its readers. The story of British Vogue is one of how London embraced modernism and avant-garde art in the 1920s, and in doing so made both the magazine and the city relevant. It's also a key part of the story of how women got into work, as the ready-to-wear clothing industry boomed. So, come along with us as we journey back to the Roaring Twenties and discover the birth of British Vogue. Vogue was launched in the United States in 1892, starting life as a small New York society journal published weekly. Its opening manifesto declared its dedication to society, fashion and the ceremonial side of life. The magazine was founded by society man Arthur Baldwin Turnier and had the backing of famous New Yorkers like the Vanderbilt family. The original Vogue spoke to the elite and the most well-heeled of New York society. This audience predominantly was a male one. The magazine's unique high society selling point attracted the attention of the eponymous New York business magnate Condé Montrose Nast. In 1905, Condé Nast began courting the owners of Vogue to sell the publication. Arthur Turnier died of pneumonia just one year into the negotiations, and it took Nast three more years to secure Vogue, with him becoming owner in 1909. Under Nast, and with the appointment of Edna Woolman Chase as editor-in-chief, the focus of the magazine shifted to, in the words of Edna, a magazine of fashion, authority, information and beauty for our readers, and to make it as valuable a medium as possible in which advertisers may present their own messages. The American dream was alive and well. British Vogue was born out of a kind of necessity, as the New York import Vogue had become very successful in England in the 1910s. During the First World War, Vogue was the second most read publication in the trenches by US servicemen after the news magazine The Saturday Evening Post. Very surprising. You won't hear about Vogue in any articles about what our boys were reading in the First World War, because it's now so associated with women and, of course, a frivolity. Early Vogues were a bit more general in their approach to what they included and were much less glossily produced. Edna Woolman Chase wrote... We once illustrated the love story of a girl on an army post, 
with drawings of plump, belligerent trout on hooks. The idea that an illustration might plausibly complement the text had yet to gain a footing. When the war made it impossible to get the magazines to Britain, Condé Nast, never one to ignore demand or profit, got round the issue of importing the US magazine by starting a Vogue publication in London. Condé Nast's first choice for editor of his British Vogue was a lady named Dorothy Todd. Accordingly, Todd was brought to New York to train as a journalist. And so, in the meantime, Elspeth Champ Communal, say that quickly three times over, or Champco, as she was called by her friend Virginia Woolf, became the first editor of British Vogue in 1916. Champco, now more famous as a fashion designer than as an editor, was in France when World War I broke out and was married to painter Joseph Champ Communal, who died just two years before Champco became editor-in-chief. British Vogue, or Brogue as it was confusingly and affectionately known, was initially mainly just a straight copy of the US magazine with anglicised spelling and some extra pictures of English socialites to provide local colour. Champco was at the helm as editor-in-chief until 1922, but with declining sales, Nast decided to replace her with Dorothy Todd, fresh from her apprenticeship in New York. There was no bad blood between the two lady editors, and in fact Todd moved into Champ Communal's house on Church Street in Chelsea when she left for Paris. Champco went to open a couture house where her simple designs of striking fabrics and innovative trimmings were revered as much of those as Chanel. In 1933, she became head designer at W.W. Revel Terry. When Revel Terry and the London branch of Worth merged in 1936, Champ Communal became the head designer at Worth London, a position she retained until the late 1950s. Worth was a hugely influential designer, and one of very few British designers to reach couture heights. Condé Nast set up home for his British publication in the fashionable locale of New Bond Street. New Bond Street had developed from its 18th century beginnings to become a popular shopping street for the upper-class residents of Mayfair. A little bit of Bond Street history. In the 1600s, the land that is now Bond Street, Dover Street and Albemarle Street was then a site for a palatial London mansion called Clarendon House. In the 1700s, the land was sold to, amongst others, Thomas Bond, the namesake for Bond Street. Despite there being New Bond Street to the north and Old Bond Street to the south, both streets were actually constructed around the same time in the 1720s. By the time Nast moved British Vogue to London, Bond Street was already established as the go-to place for luxury goods, and so it was a natural home for Vogue. Vogue shared the building at 1-5 to New Bond Street with other well-to-do businesses and, at the time, its neighbours were the likes of the Fine Art Society and Sotheby's. By the 1950s, Vogue outgrew its offices at 1-5 to New Bond Street and, in 1958, Vogue moved to its own self-titled building, Vogue House on Hanover Square. Bond Street still is today dedicated to luxury fashion stores and Vogue's old home is now the flagship Ralph Lauren store in London. Meanwhile, back in 1922, Dorothy Todd became editor-in-chief of British Vogue. The author Rebecca West described her as a fat little woman, full of energy, full of genius. Good editors are rarer than good writers, and she was a great editor. Todd had been in New York training as a journalist until she came home to take up the big job. She had a vision. Vogue has no intention of confining its pages to hats and frocks. 
In literature, drama, art and architecture, the same spirit of change is seen at work, and to the intelligent observer, the interplay of suggestion and influence between all these things is one of the fascinations of the study of the contemporary world. Dorothy Todd didn't take anyone's direction. Appointed to run Vogue after the somewhat drab commercial performance of Champco, Todd had big plans. Her Vogue wouldn't be just about clothes, it would be about fashioning the mind. Todd was appointed to Vogue within a very culturally busy decade. The term fashion designer starts to be used for the first time between the two world wars. In the fashion world, the big names were of course French. Madeleine Vionnet, Jean Patou and Coco Chanel. There was still a British contingent, Charles Worth to name but one, and English designer Norman Hartnell opened his London studio on Bruton Street in 1923, just around the corner from Vogue's offices. Bruton Street was an address that befits a couturier. In the year 1926, a few doors down at number 17 Bruton Street, baby Elizabeth Windsor would be born. However, despite some success stories, established names of the London fashion scene were faltering in the new climate. After decades of success, Titanic survivor and fashion designer Lady Duff Gordon had her design studio closed in the beginning of the 1920s, and others were to follow. Dorothy Todd looked like the archetype of the sporty, stylish 1920s woman, as you'd expect from the editor of Vogue, even one with highfalutin ideas about modernism. In pictures, she doesn't look fat to my modern eye, but I suppose people were tinier back then. This was a time when sports clothes became fashionable, a high-style, very posh version of today's ubiquitous tracksuit and trainers, and more influenced by tennis and polo than by track and field. Fashion finally got the chance to flourish. Wartime is never a great moment for clothes, so 1914-18 were a utilitarian bust. Before that, while clothes were always crucial to the way people presented themselves, it was the era of huge hats, ankle-length skirts, and of course, the corset. When you look at pictures of women from 1910, it feels very much like the olden days. It's incredible how much changed in just 10 years or so. During the Great War, women got out of the habit of wearing corsets. So it was possible to get by without a maid, if you're aristocratic or middle class. If you're working class, a lot of the maid work dried up, but I guess at least you didn't have to single-handedly get a corset on every morning. So now women are entering the workforce in a bigger way, which is reflected in the clothes that are available. Department stores were stocking affordable skirts and blouses for working women, and chain shops were opening like CNA, which opened its first shop in Britain in 1922 on the corner of Oxford Street and Bird Street. There was a class divide between the shoppers of Oxford Street and Bond Street that has lasted until the present day. Virginia Woolf wrote in one of her wonderful London scene essays that were published in Good Housekeeping in the 1930s that Oxford Street, it goes without saying, is not London's most distinguished thoroughfare. Moralists have been known to point the finger of scorn at those who buy there, and they have the support of the dandies. Fashion has secret crannies of Hanover Square, round about Bond Street, to which it withdraws discreetly to perform its more sublime rites. In Oxford Street there are too many bargains, too many sales, too many goods marked down to one and eleven three that only last week cost two and six. The buying and selling is too blatant and raucous. Another consequence of the war is that there's quite a few more women around than men, especially among the upper classes whom Vogue was aimed at. 
When it comes to how women felt about their romantic lives, there's both increased competition for any attractive men still alive and available, but also a sense of fatalism about staying single. Most women did still marry, and the marriage rate bounces back really quickly, but nonetheless, in the 1920s, there's a feeling of there being more single women around than usual. I don't know if it's related, but in the 20s, women cut their hair short. That's the first time in the history of fashion that short hair has been desirable for women. And of course, the hemlines go up to the calf, and then the knee. Aside from being super racy, this means that suddenly the old knitted woolen stockings look a bit rubbish. They go saggy around the knee and ankle. So instead, lovely silk stockings are made that follow the shape of the leg. This is a step change in how much of your body was on show, from your ankle to the nape of your neck, and no one really expected it. It was so striking that it inspired the economist George Taylor to come up with the hemline index, the idea you might have heard of, that when times are good, hemlines rise, and when the inevitable crash comes, down they go again. British Vogue came into being in this London in the 1920s, full of decadence and hedonism. This was, of course, the time of flappers and fast cars. And because there was no prohibition, unlike on the other side of the pond, it was much easier to access all that fun. The celebrities of the day were the bright young things, a smart set of young people including the Mitford family and the photographer Cecil Beaton. Beaton got his start as a photographer when Dorothy Todd published one of his photos. However, this patronage didn't mean he held off from describing her as having the face of a sea lion. One of the peripheral bright young things, Sylvia Townsend Warner, wrote a hit novel titled Lolly Willows about the 1920s single lady. Life was about seizing the day and not worrying about tomorrow, which was the perfect breeding ground for magazines. London was a central point for fashion in the 1920s, but it wasn't the central point. The fashion industry then was focused, to the exclusion of any other stars, on the blinding sun of Paris. It was standard for London buyers to go to shop in Paris and then bring things home to be copied, whether legitimately under licence or otherwise. English women in the 1920s were arguably still much more conservative in their tastes than the French. French designs would frequently be modified for the British market to be less clingy or revealing and to involve a lot more tweed. However, the London consumer was highly aware that Paris was where the big decisions were made about what was in. At this time, clothes were often still made at home to a pattern, and it's only in the later 1920s that mass-produced clothes really get a foothold in those chain stores. In 1921, one third of girls leaving school went to work in the textile and clothing industries, and being a seamstress was one of the few professions open to black women. The designer Isabel had 550 staff, including 400 girls. Department stores like Harvey Nichols had workshops of their own in London that churned out clothes for their ladies' section. Dorothy Todd was arguably one of these new working women, although I don't think we can categorise her along with some of these school leavers, as they would have been working-class girls who learned sewing and dressmaking, and they definitely didn't read Vogue. Not much is known about Todd's early life, so I don't know what type of background she came from, but as Vogue generally employed upper-crust girls fresh from the finishing school, I think we can assume she was genteel. There was a rough hierarchy in fashion, that working-class women made things, middle-class women studied art and design, and upper-class women were consumers and tastemakers. 
I think there was still an underlying assumption that upper class meant intrinsically better than everyone else. Fashion design sort of happened in among all of these other activities. As a result of all this expertise in sewing and designing, clothes were getting better and cheaper. British brand Jaeger even advertised itself with the line, you can no longer tell a shop girl from a duchess, which real duchesses would probably have disagreed with quite heartily. English artist and fashion designer Sonia Delaunay wrote that before the inescapable reign of ready-made clothes, we were enjoying the last days of the modèle unique, before the first liberated women would be imitated by thousands of others. The modèle unique was the outfit of which there was only one copy, and it was fitted just to you. A lovely thought, but beyond the skill or spending power of most people. Vogue did feature more affordable ready-made clothes and patterns, but it was still mostly about describing trends and barely had any illustrations. Todd's Vogue aimed to put fashion in the context of a buzzing intellectual scene, rather than it just being shut away in a ballroom. She set about commissioning articles and stories from writers like Virginia Woolf, Vanessa Bell and Aldous Huxley. Vogue was made in London and sold to women all over the country. One besotted reader in the countryside wrote to say that Down here in the country, one is inclined to vegetate a little, and it's not always easy to be au fait with the contemporary art and literature. I find myself able to discuss what's on with the knowledge that no country cousin could hope to achieve without the guidance of Vogue. The 1920s was also the peak era of modernism, which is all about breaking with the past and emphasising the new. There was no place for nostalgia, and instead Todd ran articles on topics from surrealist art to satires on the new fad for extreme weight loss. When she got her mitts on Vogue in 1922, it was all about high society and features called things like seen in the shops, smart fashions for limited incomes, and the possibilities of suede. Vogue's financier and boss, Condé Nast, had a rule that each issue of Vogue had to contain two full-page society photos, which meant a picture of posh people at an event like the polo or a ball. Nast was keen to keep Vogue elite, but to him this did not mean intellectually elite. Nevertheless, in 1924, Vogue published articles such as Women of Distinction in Literature and The Triumph of the Machine. One article that perfectly shows the balance Todd struck between fashion coverage and the art scene she obviously loved was called Modernist art applied to painted fabrics becomes increasingly important in the mode. Snappy title. In 1926, the magazine stated that Cubism deserves to be ranked with broadcasting and the theory of relativity as an invention characteristic of our time. Here, Vogue was reflecting all that is exciting and new in the 1920s, but also building its own identity as the greatest authority on everything to do with being current, whether that's your hat or your art collection. An advert in 1923 ran, If you absorb Vogue regularly, issue by issue, you gradually become imbued with the Vogue idea. The prime example of the literary bent to Vogue during these years is Todd's most famous contributor, Virginia Woolf. Their relationship was a great win for Todd professionally and a bit of a mixed blessing for Woolf. Apparently Todd went shopping with her and helped her choose an outfit, which, when Woolf wore it, was horribly insulted by one friend. And then, to be fair, praised to the rafters by another. Fashion is very subjective. Todd paid Woolf £10 per 1,000 words, 
which amounts to about £500 an article today. Seems okay to me. Especially because Wolf could write about whatever she liked. She, however, described it as selling her soul and Vogue as a vulgar paper. Wolf did confess that she was intrigued by the fame it could bring her on the London social scene, on a par with her male contemporaries. Fashion offered this potential for success to women, bluntly because men weren't interested in these opportunities. Many talented women who in the modern day could have worked in numerous different industries found a home in fashion and in women's magazines more generally. Todd continued to try to balance hybrid culture with mass appeal. In late 1924, Vogue issues had editorials about art exhibitions and literary advancements, alongside pieces on fur being the chic travel mode for winter and with advice on cocktail making. Side note, Cocktail making became trendy in London in the 1920s, and the cocktail hour was all the rage. Cocktail hour was held between 6 and 8 in the evening, and involved standing up and chatting with one elegant mixed drink in your hand. As such, it required a new type of outfit, the cocktail dress. Todd succeeded with her big plans for Vogue to be the place to fashion the mind. It did this whilst also running articles like The Importance of Being Beautiful, However, the content continued to prove to be too highbrow for Todd's boss, Condé Nast. In 1926, just four years into the job, Nast fired Todd, with Rebecca West claiming that the Americans didn't want British Vogue to be the advanced literary and artistic review she was turning it into. Despite Mr Nast's claim that circulation was down, the magazine steadily gained more readers in the 20s and made it to around 20,000 by the end of the decade. Also, the advertisers loved the vibe of Todd's magazine and copied the jazzy look and slang in their adverts, which were for an amazing array of things, from legit shops like Selfridges to the kind of weight loss snake oil you expect from adverts of the early 20th century. Clark's reducing paste, anyone? As for the very slim ladies of the magazine, if you think airbrushing is a recent innovation, nope. There was a designer whose entire job it was to airbrush out models' wrinkles and to make their hips look slimmer. Todd had refused to make any changes to suit the public taste and the American owners weren't into her love affair with the literary London. Or her actual love affairs. When fired, she threatened to sue and consulted a lawyer, but Condé Nast played dirty. He said he would defend himself by attacking her morals. For all that Todd was fairly openly a lesbian and lived in a lofty bohemian slice of society, it was still after all the 1920s and it wouldn't have been a good thing to be outed in a blaze of publicity. So Todd went quietly. Surprisingly, given what you may think about the time, Todd wasn't even Vogue's first quite openly gay or bisexual editor. Champco had had a not-too-secret female partner as well. It seems that Todd's sexuality and the content of the magazine was just too much for Vogue of the time. So Todd was gone. But one of her great legacies at Vogue were the many people who she championed and whose careers she nurtured. Her girlfriend, Madge Garland, left Vogue when Todd was fired in 1926, but came back in 1933 as the fashion editor. She later went on to open the fashion department at the Royal College of Art. As we know, British Vogue's impact on the literary and fashion world did not end with Todd's departure. In fact, Vogue was just getting started. But, thanks to these pioneering women, by the mid-1920s in London, 
British Vogue as an icon was born. We opened with the words of Rebecca West, a lifelong friend of Madge Garland's, and her lovely words about Todd, and we'll close with hers about Todd and Garland as a couple and what they achieved in their five years at Vogue. Together, these women changed Vogue from just another fashion paper to being the best of fashion papers and a guide to the modern movement in the arts. They brought us all the good news about Picasso and Matisse. They also gave young writers a firmer foundation than they might have had by commissioning them to write articles on intelligent subjects at fair prices. There never was such a paper. Thank you for listening to Fear City, telling the tales of our very favourite city in the world and home, London. If you like our podcast, then please subscribe or write us a review. Fierce City was written and produced by the two voices you have heard. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.